Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features 3D Umergar at Hennepin County Library, Plymouth. Over the past decade, 3D Umergar has emerged as a leading, cherished voice in Indian American culture. Her fiction, usually set in urban India, showcases the wealth of diversity found within the world's second largest country. Umergar first gained a wide audience with her sophomore work, The Space Between Us, in 2006, which hinges on the intimacy and irreconcilable class divide between a well-to-do woman and her downtrodden servant in contemporary Bombay. Umargar, who grew up in Mumbai's minority Parsi community, knows her subject matter intimately. She even chronicled her own stories in a 2008 memoir, First Darling of the Morning. For her most recent project, Umargar returned to her unforgettable The Space Between Us protagonist for her sequel, 12 Years in the Making. Publishers Weekly praised The Secrets Between Us as a splendid tale that should appeal to all readers with open hearts, regardless of their familiarity with their previous work or the culture of Mumbai. Thank you to all of you for such a great turnout. I really appreciate each and every one of you making the effort. Um, I'm sorry, as you can probably hear, I'm just, uh, I'm fighting a pretty severe sinus infection. Um, what I thought we would do today is, uh, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about sort of my long and winding road to becoming a, a novelist, and, um, and then tell you a little bit about how my most recent book, the sequel to The Space Between Us, a sequel that I had always promised I would never ever write <laughs> came to be. So um, I started writing at a pretty young age. Um, my earliest writing uh, basically took the form of these anonymous poems that I would write to my parents when I was maybe five or six years old. Um, and basically, any time I didn't get my way, you know, any time I was refused that second slice of cake or whatever, I would, I had this little study that was right off their bedroom, and I would scoot in there and write this very bad, angry poem to them, and then look for an opening for when they were not around, and leave it on their bed. Um, and for years, I believed that my parents were geniuses, because they always figured out who the writer was. <laughs> um, 
and the fact that I was an only child somehow <laughs> just, it just never computed. Um, but my parents were pretty smart. Um, but from the time I was maybe about seven years old, <clears throat> I knew that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, the truth was I, I wanted to be a poet or a storyteller, but as a middle-class child in India, as the daughter of a businessman, um, there was really nothing in my life that would have allowed me to imagine such a future for myself. I knew of no other writers. I actually didn't know of any creative people at all. Um, all the people that I grew up around you know, had their own businesses or worked in banks. Um, that was sort of my world. And we were the kind of household that, you know, we subscribed to three daily newspapers every day, obviously, daily newspaper every day. Um, but it was not the kind of household where, you know, there were piles of novels and tickets to the ballet just laying around the coffee table. In fact, the constant complaint that my mom had at every single PTA meeting was, she reads too much. Um, so I decided that journalism um, was a good compromise. Uh, and I don't frankly know how I knew that at such a young age, but I somehow did. Um, in that, it would allow me to tell and write stories. And yet, it still had sort of the sheen of conformity that being a poet or a storyteller of a different kind did not. And frankly, even saying that I wanted to be a journalist was pushing the envelope quite a bit. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I was an only child, and my dad had high hopes that as I grew older, basically I'd come to my senses and join the family business that he had started when he was a young man. Um, and given the kind of headstrong and impulsive teenager <clears throat> that I was, he had nightmares about my becoming a political journalist and landing in jail. <laughs> so he tried his best um, to get these silly notions of becoming a journalist out of my head um, until the day when I was maybe 16 years old. Actually, that's not true. I would have had to have been older than that. Um, I told him that given my lack of head for figures and accounting, I would run his business into the ground by the end of the first week. <laughs> and two, that if the workers ever went on strike, I would join them against him. <laughs> After that, he decided that my being a journalist was probably not such a bad idea. And so at the ripe old age of 21, I came to the United States to get my master's in journalism at Ohio State. Why Ohio State? I mean, how does a kid in India know about Ohio State? Well, this was pre-internet days, and in those days you went to the US Embassy and they gave you, you know, a sheet of paper that listed every program in the country that offered whatever you wanted to major in. And um, I remember clearly I, I, I uh, checked off uh, Columbia University because I knew about their journalism program. I think I picked some place in California because it was California and I needed a third choice. 
Um, and at that point, that's where my knowledge of you know, the United States sort of ran out. Um, so I'm sitting in my living room, it's evening time, and I have a Joan Baez album playing on the stereo. And while I'm studying this sheet of paper, a song called The Banks of the Ohio, which is an old folk song that she used to sing, plays. And, I, and my eyes sort of landed on Ohio State, and I thought, it's a sign. And, <laughs> and so 35 plus years later, I still live in Ohio. So I graduated from Ohio State, and then I became a reporter <laughs> for the next 17 years. I wrote a local column, and I covered social issues and human interest stories, basically writing about uh, topics quite similar to that which would later dominate my fiction. Um, and somewhere in the 1990s, I decided it was time for me to go back to school and work part-time on a PhD while working full-time as a reporter. Um, not a very smart thing to do. Um, but a funny thing happened on my way towards that PhD. I discovered that I was a creative writer rather than a scholar. Uh, the more great books I was exposed to, the more it made me want to not analyze them or critique them as all my classmates seemed to want to do, but to go home and write and tell my own stories. And that's how during that same period of great intellectual stimulation, I wrote what would eventually become my first novel called Bombay Time. But then I hit a crossroad. Uh, so I was uh, going to school in the evenings. I was working all day as a journalist. And I was trying to write a novel. And it was clear that something had to give. And at some point, I made the decision that I needed to finish the dissertation. And I set the novel aside. Now, at this point, I have to ask all of you for an honest show of hands. How many of you have? incomplete manuscript sitting somewhere at home. OK, yeah, very reluctantly, a few hands went up. Um, so there's this terrible secret about incomplete manuscripts. They keep haunting you. Uh, they don't let you really focus on anything else. And so in the late 1990s, uh, I decided that if I wanted to get serious about writing this book, finishing this book, I had my PhD by then. Um, I needed time. Uh, and my, my work as a daily reporter did not give me that luxury of time. And so I applied for something known as the Neiman Fellowship to Harvard. And the Neiman Fellowship is basically awarded to um, mid, what they call mid-career journalists, which I've always thought is a polite way of saying middle-aged uh, journalists. Um, and basically, it's the sweetest deal on earth. It basically allows you to take any class that you want at Harvard after getting permission of the professor. And so that's what I did for a year. I was lucky enough to get the uh, fellowship, and that's what made it possible uh, for me to, to finish my book. Um, I would wake up very early in the morning, 4.30, 5 a.m., and before it was time to start my school day, I would work for as many hours as I could on my manuscript. 
And then I got an even luckier break in that uh, I found an agent while I was still there. And so by the time I left Cambridge a year later, um, I had a publishing contract. Um, so since then, I've written um, and published eight novels, a memoir, and um, my first ever children's picture book, which I think came out last year or two years ago, um, with two more picture books coming out next fall and a new novel coming out um, the year after. Um, but now I want to tell you uh, about how the secrets between us after this commercial break. <laughs> so in order to tell you about the secrets between us, I first have to tell you a little bit about the original book called The Space Between Us. A good 10 years or so earlier, I had written a novel called The Space Between Us, which basically tells the story of this rather unlikely friendship between two women from very different class backgrounds. One is Sarah Dubash, this highly educated, cultured, um, affluent woman. Um, and the other person is Bima, the domestic servant who works in her home and has served her faithfully for many, many years. The reason I wrote The Space Between Us is even as a child in my middle class home, I, I was always struck by this complicated and yet very emotionally rich relationship between the mistress of the household and usually the female servants that they would employ. And given the gross inequities between the two, these, these were relationships that are rather easy to caricature. But the reality was more complicated, as reality often is. Um, I knew that the bonds between mistress and servant were often very genuine. Um, give you a couple of examples. Um, illiterate servant, not knowing, not having a bank account, not knowing how to read or write even their own name, would often trust the mistress to withhold 10% whatever they could spare of their salary each month to set aside for them as a rainy day fund. And because they couldn't read or write, there was no question of having you know, an IOU or any such thing. This was done in blind trust. Um, and frankly, often this was a way of keeping money aside without telling the husband back home, lest he drink away that money, right? So this, this was a gendered thing that ha happens on a fairly regular place, uh, basis. And similarly, you know, because the servant is in the home for so many hours every day, uh, the servant knows secrets um, about what goes on between the mistress and her husband um, that even the closest family friends may not be aware of. Um, so this is not an uncommon reality, what I'm describing. So I was thinking back to my childhood and how I used to be fascinated as a child just watching this really intimate domestic dance happen every day. Um, and I was also very, very aware of, of the injustice uh, that was built into these relationships. Uh, case in point, um, 
the same person who cooks your food is not allowed to share it at the family table. Um, the same person who cleans your furniture um, cannot sit on it. Um, so I used to see as a child and, and sort of in my own, you know, totally ineffectual way, try and engineer some change. But of course, I was one child against a very wide system. Um, but the nice thing about a writer is all the things that you cannot do as a kid, you can try and do as a, as a writer. Um, but I also felt that since almost every single um, middle class home in India uh, employed servants, that this was the great untold Indian middle class story. Um, and yet, to my great surprise, no other fellow Indian American writers was tackling this subject matter. Um, and I literally waited several years thinking someone was going to come along, someone smarter than me, you know, more well-read than me, who would, who would tackle this, and nobody wrote about this. And so one day I simply decided that if I wanted to read such a book, I had to write such a book. And that was the reason why I wrote The Space Between Us. So now, uh, fast forward about 10 years. Ever since Space came out, readers have been asking for a sequel. Um, some of these requests were so heartfelt and earnest, you know, things like, how is Bhima doing? <laughs> is she going to be okay? That my jaw would drop and I would sometimes have to remind people gently and politely <laughs> that Bhima was not real. Um, but in my heart, I was pretty sure, you know, I would nod solemnly when people would ask for a sequel and say, oh, I'll, I'm thinking about it, but no. The truth is, I, I just never thought that I would write a sequel. I felt like everything that I had wanted to say about the things that I have already described to you, I had said, and I'm, I'm too restless a writer to wanna sort of go back to the same terrain. I would much rather create new characters in a new setting and tell a different story. So I had no intention of ever writing a sequel. But over that time period, one character kept nagging me. And that character is such a minor character in the original book, her name is Parvati, that she doesn't even merit a line of dialogue. I mean, she is simply a female vegetable vendor who earns her living selling six heads of cauliflower um, every day at the market where Bhima used to shop for her mistress. And the two women have nothing to do with one another. Uh, in fact, Bhima, because she works for an affluent woman, uh, would, would literally look down her nose. And, and uh, Parvati is also a little disfigured, so Bhima would just look away. Um, and, and Parvati was aware of this, this unspoken insult. She was aware of it. Um, but as somebody, even though I grew up in India, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up middle class. I had absolutely no idea how somebody can earn a living selling six cauliflowers a day. Um, much less what would have to go so terribly wrong in a human being's life 
to bring them to that point. Um, and then one day, um, I was in the shower, and um, next thing I knew, I saw the whole story. I saw Parvati's story. I saw her backstory. Um, and in that instant, I thought, if I'm going to do a sequel, I have to introduce a new character like her, bring her into the mix. Uh, so it's not simply a repeat of the dynamic between Bhima and Sarah, but now it's a new story. And I just, almost by instinct, even though I didn't know how exactly this would happen, I just had a feeling that these two women, Bhima and Parvati, both marginalized, both sort of scorned by a country that was fast changing and becoming affluent. You know, these are women who were just left behind uh, in the era <clears throat> of globalization. I just had a feeling that if I could put their story side, side by side and just watch them talking, that they would have something to say to one another and they would have something to teach one another. And once I knew that, I was so excited. I think I started writing the book that same day, and I wrote it in, I don't know, four months or something, the book was done. You know, it was like, once I knew a little bit of her background story, I knew the rest of it. I had mentioned earlier that I have two children's books coming out next year. <clears throat> I just want to tell you about one of them. I think one of the chief moral issues of our time is the issue of immigration because to me it goes to the heart of how we treat the most vulnerable among us. And because I'm an immigrant, I thought I was well positioned to weigh in a little bit on this issue. Needless to say, I came to this country legally with all the accompanying privileges that come with that. I was born into not just a middle-class family, but a loving family. Um, I had received a good education. I spoke fluent English when I came. I was never abused or persecuted. I have never experienced gang violence. I had every privilege that a human being can possibly have, and yet, with all those advantages, I know full well the loneliness of exile. I know the feeling of homesickness. I know how a certain smell or piece of music can transport you, you know, 10,000 miles away in an instant. And I know that what separates me from someone crossing over illegally is simply being born in the right family. And what is that except an accident and a fluke and sheer good luck? Um, but here's the reason why I truly wrote this book. You see, I'm a double immigrant. M my ancestors came to India close to a thousand years ago um, from what used to be Persia, what today would mostly be Iran. And they basically came to India as political refugees, asking to be let in. And in fact, I'd like to close by telling you a, a beautiful story, I think. It's, it's a legend, and this is what my children's book is based on, is on this legend. 
And this is how it goes. It says that when um, the, so, so my ancestors belong to this uh, religion called Zoroastrianism. Some of you may have heard of it. It's an old ancient religion, predates Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all, all the three major religions. Um, so uh, when the Arab conquests of, of Persia happened, um, my ancestors, who were the original people of Persia, uh, many of them converted to Islam, and some of them um, basically escaped. Um, and they, they landed on boats on the western shores of India, what today would be the city of Bombay, I still call it that, um, and they asked to be let in. And the story goes that the Hindu ruler of this little uh, town, I guess, where they landed, met them at the shore, and he had absolutely no reason to let them in. But there was a language barrier, so he couldn't say that to them. So he asked one of his men to give him an empty glass, and he proceeded to fill the glass all the way to the top with milk, and he pointed to it as a way of saying, sorry, you know, there's just no room for you people. And uh, the leader of this expedition, he was a Zoroastrian priest. He asked one of his men for some sugar. And he took the sugar and very, very carefully dissolved it in this glass of milk. And in turn, what he was saying, and he pointed to that, and his, what he was trying to say is, if you let us stay, not only will we live in India as a model community, not only will we not disrupt your way of life at all, but we will actually sweeten it with our presence. And the story ends with you know, the Hindu ruler just being so taken aback by, by the quick-wittedness of, of this guy that he, he flung his arms open and said, welcome to your new home. And that's how uh, what came to be known as the Parsis of India um, ended there. So I just thought, you know, and, and I just have to end by saying that this is a story which is sort of drilled into the heads of every Parsi child growing up that has really guided me um, in my own immigration story uh, in this country. Um, so I just, so that's what my book is about. Um, and I just thought it was such a lovely story and, and I thought it would be relevant to, to children too. It, because it's a story about warmth and friendship and all the good things in life, you know? And sugar, I mean, who doesn't like sugar? <laughs> so I want to end by quoting to you two of my all-time favorite quotes. Uh, the first, I don't know who said this, uh, but it says, history is written by the winners. Literature is written by the losers. <laughs> I love that, and I take it very much to heart. And the second one is by playwright Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America, and he says, hope is not a choice. It is a moral obligation. So I say to you, stay on the side of the losers, my friends, <laughs> and always, always stay hopeful. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for 3D Umagar and her work. 
In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering why Umargar decided to stay in the United States after finishing school instead of returning to India. So when I had left, I had promised about eight people that two days after I got my master's degree in journalism, I would come back and the future I saw for myself was getting a job at the Times of India. So nine months after I came, I went home for Christmas just for two weeks. And I'd only been in this country for nine months at that point. And on my way back, I had to change planes at JFK. And uh, I was walking down this really long hallway. And it, I, th I seem to remember that it was one of those moving walkways, you know. And in, right in front of me, from the, coming down from the ceiling, was this enormous American flag, probably the biggest flag I've ever seen. You know, it was enormous. And I looked at it, and my hair stood up. And I told myself, no, 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 no. This is not your country. You cannot have your hair stand up. You just can't. You, you're gonna, you'll head, you're heading for trouble. Don't do that. It's like trying to stop yourself from falling in love, right? I lost the battle. <laughs> and that's, that's honestly uh, uh, a true story. Uh, I, I'll tell you something funny. I mean, for years, for years, I used to go around saying, you don't want people coming to this country. You want to stop immigration. Americans should just stop being so damn nice. <laughs> Somebody heard me. <laughs> it's my fault. <laughs> because honestly, I could, from now until midnight, I could tell you story after story of my first two years as a graduate student and what perfect strangers did for me and you know, that to me is my America. It's, it's like, I, I just, sometimes I just think, I don't know how to re reconcile my own experiences with what I read about. It just seems impossible. This audience member asks about the inspiration behind Umergar's novel, Everybody's Son. So Everybody's Son is probably my only novel that is neither set in India nor has any Indian characters. I certainly have written books uh, that don't have too many Indian characters, but you know they're set partially in India. That's my first book. That it's a story about race and race relations in this country. And and you know, I, I've been thinking. I mean, it seems ludicrous. I left India when I was 21. <clears throat> you know, I don't follow politics or <clears throat> the art scene or anything there very closely, if at all. Um, I mean, this is home, and um, uh, it seems silly to, to keep going to the same well and not write about what's all around me. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't thinking, I mean, this is all retrospection. I wasn't thinking along these lines when the idea for the book came to me. Uh, you, will, you will detect a theme here. I was once again in the shower. I apparently take a lot of showers. Um, and this has never happened to me before, and sadly it probably will never happen again. But within a span of maybe 30 seconds, I saw the whole book. 
from start to finish. I knew the whole story, and not just that, I knew the names of all the major characters in the book. In, 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 yeah. So when that happens, you don't question it. You just say thank you, and you, you know, <laughs> and you start writing. Yeah. But really, that's how that book came about. I started it, I think, in the last couple of years of the Obama presidency. So I'm sure some of that was all in the air. You know, I mean, this is what you do as writers, right? I always think writers are like birds. I mean, you, you pick up a twig here and a branch here and a leaf here, and then you forget about it. And then a few years later, you look and you have a nest, you know? So so don't want to make it sound too, you know, um, supernatural. But at that moment, it felt like it. It felt like a gift. This question is what the line is between trying to understand another culture and cultural misappropriation. Well, I actually wrote a book about that, but it's not everybody's son. I wrote a book called The Weight of Heaven, which tells the story of this young American couple in their 30s uh, who lose their seven-year-old son. And as a way of healing and trying to hold their marriage together, um, the wife forces the husband to accept a one or two year position at the small village in India. And when they land there, um, uh, Frank, uh, the husband, sort of is very drawn to the son of their Indian housekeepers. And Ellie, who's a therapist, sees all the warning signs because Prakash is poor, the boy is poor, but he has parents of his own who in their own way love him very much. And Frank more and more begins to convince himself that he knows better and that he could provide a life for the boy um, that, um, uh, you know, that his parents simply could never be able to in a million years. Um, and it's very much a story about cult cultural appropriation, misappropriation, you know, what's right, what's wrong. And I, I would hope that I don't offer any simple answers to that in the book, um, because life is complicated. This audience member wonders if 3D Umbergar gets emotionally attached to any of the characters she creates. You know, I don't know if I get emotionally invested uh, as much as I get, I mean, just time-wise. You know, when I'm in the middle of a book, I'm just thinking about it all the time. I can't do anything. I can't take a shower. I can't go for a walk. I can't wash dishes. You know, uh, I can't watch a movie in a theater without, I mean, there are times when I'll go and pull out a notebook um, um, and, and, and take notes if something, if a line of dialogue goes through. So I'm very much wrapped up in the lives of my characters when I'm, when I'm writing the book. Um, I think I have pretty healthy boundaries and I always know, unlike most of my readers, I do know that they are fictional uh, <laughs> characters. You know? um, so, but, but you know, it's very interesting because my response as a reader is very much like yours. You know, when I, if, if I love a book, I'll just, I'll just burst into tears uh, when I get done with it. Uh, you know, if the writing is beautiful or if the storyline itself is very moving, I'll just start sobbing, you know. Uh, 
but somehow my own words don't have the ability to move me. <laughs> I, I should probably up my game a little bit more. Um, but, you know, and honestly, to be perfectly candid with you, by the time you're really and truly done with a book, because you do so many rewrites, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, bye-bye. Yeah. Our next question is how Umergar's background as a journalist helps her write books. So I, I, I've only been a journalist in this country, and I'm telling you, I've said this many times before, for an immigrant, there's no better profession. Because what other job, I mean, I'm all of 23, I'm two years into a new country, and suddenly I'm meeting with CEOs of companies one day, and I'm literally knocking on somebody's door in, in the inner city the next day. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm spending a week uh, living in the home of uh, a single mom on welfare because I want to tell the story from the ground up. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to a five-star hotel. It, it, it just gave me an inroad into American society. It was such a shortcut into really understanding the country um, that I can't imagine, I mean, maybe being an ER doctor, but that would have been so superficial. I mean, this is, people are trusting you with their stories. I, I just cannot think of a better gift, you know? Somebody is really, I mean, all you have to do is say, how do you feel? And somebody tells you how they feel. And I used to, always marvel at how little um, encouragement it took to get somebody to share really private and intimate details of their lives with you, you know? Because Indian society is not like that. You know, it's much more sort of close-lipped than that. Uh, and I used to, I was just so enamored and enchanted um, it's like everything, every stereotype that we knew about Americans as being sort of almost childlike in their innocence was true, I found, you know. Uh, so, uh, no, I mean, this is what people used to think, you know, that, that Americans were friendly and they were, they were just open-hearted and, and it, it turned out to be true. Most of it was true. I'll tell you, one of the things I was known for in my newsroom, I always looked for the different angle than, than most of my uh, colleagues. Like, I always wanted to tell the same story that they were telling, maybe, but from a different angle. Um, so I think, I think you're probably right. I've never thought of it in quite those terms. But yeah, uh, I think... I think I could see things that somebody who saw it every day might not have. I, I think being a journalist made it possible in some ways for me to be a novelist. Um, you know, just the discipline of writing every day, whether you feel like it or not, right? I mean, I cannot tell you how many of my writer friends, oh my goodness, they're so coy and so precious and you know, the muse is not with me, and you know, and I always think, ever had a plumber come to your house and say he couldn't fix the pipes because the muse was not with him? No, you know? So, so I have this very workmanlike, craftsmanlike attitude um, 
about writing, and I think that comes from journalism for sure. Another audience member asked if Umergar often gets together with other South Asian authors. Yeah, I, I mean, mostly because we meet each other at book festivals. Um, that's, you know, uh, I mean, the town that I live in, uh, you know, I know all the writers locally, and in fact, we have this group called Pen Gals where instead we, we basically go out to drink margaritas once a month and, <laughs> and, and swap, you know, uh, whatever we are working on, you know, we, we talk about that. It's not a writer's group in the conventional sense where we are saying, read my stuff. This is more of a social, but it's a source of great support to all of us. Um, but yeah, I know a whole bunch of people. In fact, one of the reasons I adore going to book festivals is I've made some really, really great friends um, you know, through, through just meeting them at book festivals and being on panels with people, that kind of thing. This question is if Thridi Umargar returns to India to help with her writing process. Yeah, you know, I haven't gone there in several years just because life has been crazy busy here. Um, but I think it is important to do that because especially in a city uh, like Bombay, which is changing so fast and so rapidly, um, my books don't... Um, you know, I don't write about the timely stuff. Like, I'm not talking about the pop song that's a big hit right now. You know, I'm writing about the ocean, you know. Um, it's as dirty and polluted as it was when I lived there. So, uh, I, and I write about people. Um, so, I can get by with not having to know. And, and, you know, frankly, these days, I mean, Google has just changed the world. I mean, we, you, can, you can sit on your couch in you know Michigan somewhere and um, but but yes I mean I do think it's the sensory stuff you know you do need to visit a place for that I believe the last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about the influence of Western literature on Umargar as she grew up right so so I I have a chapter <clears throat> in in my memoir where I talk about, I think, being in third grade or fourth grade, and we used to have um, uh, essay writing um, as, a, as a class period every single day. Um, and uh, the teacher said, you know, write me something, but make sure that your characters are not blonde and blue-eyed, and, uh, you know, give them Indian names. And I froze, I mean, I just didn't know how to do it because we write what we read. And up until that moment, it had never even occurred to me that I should write something that reflects the world around me. I mean, I, it, it probably makes no sense to you guys. And it, frankly, it hardly makes sense to me now when I think back on that. But I remember that moment very, very clearly. It was probably my first ever case of writer's block. I mean, I just didn't know, and I thought Indian names, like, like what, 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 what should I call my character? Like, what's an Indian name? I mean, I'm sitting in a classroom surrounded by kids with Indian names, and because I was reading, you know, at that time I'm reading Enid Blyton, um, this British um, uh, children's writer that nobody in America, sadly, has heard of, but you run into any person. Uh, 
who was ever from a country that was ever part of a British colony, and you say the words Enid Blyton, and their eyes, well, here's somebody nodding, and their eyes will just, will just light up, you know? And, but that's all I read at that point, and that's all I knew. And then as I got older, until I read Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie, which was given to me by my best friend about a week before I left to come to the U.S. for the first time. Um, I, had <coughs> I had never read a book um, by an Indian author that was set in India um, and, um, or had names. So, for instance, I was a huge fan of John Steinbeck and um, I could have told you the names of streets in California because Steinbeck wrote about that but the first time I saw Cuff Parade, which is a neighborhood in, in uh, Bombay, on paper, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, Rushdie's writing about like my city. It was just mind blowing to me. So, so strange. The glories of colonialism, you know? <laughs> Thank you so much for these great questions. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library Plymouth event with Thridi Umrigar. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with J.A. Jantz at Washington County Library, R.H. Stafford. Mystery phenom J.A. Jantz is the mind behind not one, but four blockbuster series. Her corpus, stretching back to 1985, includes nearly 70 novels to date. Her latest, Sins of the Fathers, is the 24th installment of her long-running detective, J.P. Beaumont series. It hit shelves in September. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.